Um, I have a little bit of a reputation, and thankfully there's no kids in this room. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, we need context, eh? In fact, I made another blunder like that another day with at, at work. I probably shouldn't share that story either. Uh, you weren't in here. Okay, so one of the officer cadets was walking past and I interrupted her. She said, Oh, Anna, I've still got your pants. <laughs> Which I did. Um, it's a long story, but <laughs> not an inappropriate story, I promise you. Somehow, some wet weather pants ended up in my office that someone else had used, given to me to get back to her. But that's right, we had a giggle about that one as well. Now, my reputation is being. Um, being a bit of a, a, a Santa Claus Grinch. Um, I have a Christmas grief, grief around Christmas time. Um, and probably the best way to sort of explain that a little bit is by way of illustration, um, when I lived in Auckland, I was in Hobsonville uh, Air Base um, when I was in the Air Force first time around. And, um, and the air base, before it's now this development that it is, you could kind of run around the perimeter of it, and they started using some of it to film movies. And uh, one movie they, they filmed there was called 30 Days of Night. I don't recommend it, certainly not from the front of a church. Um, anyway, it was kind of set in this Alaskan township, which in winter would have, you know, 30 days of night and there's zombies and other things. But uh, anyway, this, as I continue to kind of run around this perimeter, slowly they erected these sort of houses and then put this fake snow in. And what was amazing to me, one, is how quickly they did that. But two, when it was complete, how much it looked exactly like this Alaskan township in the middle of winter, you know, when it was the middle of summer in Hobsonville in Auckland. Um, and, but I knew, having seen these buildings being erected, that, that it was only from one angle, only from the front, this kind of facade, this appearance of this township, but behind the, the kind of well-decorated and painted sort of houses and the fake snow was, was nothing. You know, it was emptiness. It was barren. It wasn't a house that you could live in. And that, in some ways, encapsulates some of my grief around Christmas, that there's an appearance of something wonderful, something magical, something beautiful, but so often we fall so far short of just the incredible truth of this season. Perhaps we focus on anything and everything other than Christ, hence why I'm a bit of a Santa Grinch, because he takes the limelight. Um, I've gotten in trouble with my daughter at Kindy, who um, went around telling people that Santa's not real. And uh, <laughs> they pulled her aside and said, look, can you just keep that to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we did try and tell her not to spread that bad news. Um, the focus, perhaps, is even amongst Christians, might be on the, the sort of nativity story, the, the narrative, and, and we can't disconnect that at all from the, the core essence of, of the Christmas message. But it's more about sort of a manger and some animals and a star and because of the beauty of that, rather than actually what all of that is truly about, which, of course, is the story of the incarnation, that God and humanity have become one in this person of Jesus Christ. Even if we understand that on some level, I think we can fail to grasp some of the depth of this truth. 
Either we have perhaps too low a view of God. Maybe he's a bit like Santa Claus. He's just really nice and he wants to come and give us presents and do good things. And uh, even worse, maybe there's a naughty, a nice list and, uh, and we think we do or don't get on that list for whatever reason. Perhaps we have too high a view of humanity. It's not such a big idea that God become human if, well, in some regards we're a bit like God, right? Perhaps... Our picture of Christ is different to the Christ of the Scriptures. Whatever the case, I want us to grasp the significance a little bit more this morning. Friedrich Bauchner, Buchner, I'm not sure quite how to pronounce his last name, a Presbyterian pastor and writer, he says, The incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. So herein (laughs) lies my absolutely impossible task this morning, to help us grasp somewhat afresh the glory, or in the words of Mr. Bauchner, the scandal of the incarnation. Never has there been, and perhaps never will there be, something so easy to say, yet so impossible to fully comprehend this idea of incarnation. And how woefully inadequate will be my attempt to portray the true wonder, beauty, mystery, and brilliance of this incomprehensible truth. But that's the task of the preacher, and so I will give it a crack. But we need to understand that this truth, that God has become human in Christ, is at the center of all of Christianity's claims. J.I. Packer, another well-known theologian, says, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. It's here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the most profound depths of the Christian revelation lie. God became man. Nothing in fiction, he says, is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. So, what I want to do this morning is something I've never done before, something a little bit different in my regular approach to preaching. I want to appeal less to your intellect this morning and more to your affections. I think this is often one of the great um, challenges or struggles or misunderstandings perhaps of Western Christianity in particular, particularly since the Enlightenment, that that we have made our faith an intellectual journey rather than an affectionate journey. And what I mean by that is it's about understanding God and the gospel and all of this in our mind, which is not unimportant, it's deeply connected. But we often fail to grasp it in our heart. And so I want to attempt to grasp the incarnation a little bit more this morning, not simply in our minds, but in our hearts. 
that in essence, this wouldn't lead us to greater understanding necessarily, but ultimately greater worship. My foundation for this notion is found in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and I might um, preach on this. I'm, I'm actually up again on the 9th of January, so maybe we'll look at this topic, which I'm only going to touch on, um, that's raised in this verse. It says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." We're called to contemplate the Lord's glory. Another translation says to behold the Lord's glory. And herein lies one of the secrets, I think, of sanctification. That in beholding and contemplating and getting a picture of Christ through the eyes of faith, we are transformed more and more into his image with ever-increasing glory. And so it's on this foundation that I hope to present some of his glory to us this morning in and through the incarnation. Do you desire to behold it? Yeah? I hope so. So this is how we're going to approach this. I'm going to preach, um, I'm going to sort of ground this message through verses in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Um, But what I want to do is I'm going to take some broad themes that appear in this verse, and, and I'm going to seek to portray somewhat a picture of Christ through these ideas. I want to kind of create some brush strokes, so to speak, on an, on an image that hopefully will begin to depict a little bit more Christ of the Scriptures, the Christ of history, the Christ now at the right hand of the Father. And I want to invite you, uh, perhaps encourage you, to close your eyes as I do this, because my hope is that what you begin to behold is not someone standing up the front speaking words to you, but the Christ of the true Christmas, that we might, as the great Carol says, come and adore him. So if you want to do that this morning, feel free to close your eyes now as I begin. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Behold, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Behold the person who perfectly represents God to us. In the past, we are told that God had made himself known through the prophets in various ways, but that now he has spoken to us by his Son. We are told that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Behold then the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man who perfectly represents God to us. Behold the great mystery that divinity dwells in human form. 
That God, whose presence in some form is everywhere, is said to dwell in the limitation of a human body that cannot be everywhere. That God, who knows all things, is said to dwell in the limitation of a human mind that cannot possibly know all things. That God, who is in essence not material but spirit, is said to dwell in the essence of a material body, skin, flesh, bone, tissue, tendons, and blood. Behold the truth of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. That all that could be considered true, correct, and accurate is found in the person of Christ who calls himself the embodiment of truth itself. That when he spoke, every word could be considered the very words of God and therefore true in every way. Unlike the prophets who had gone before him, who had their own words and thoughts to compete with. Behold the purity of God revealed in the God-man Jesus Christ. That though his heart was tempted by the great enemy of God, he remained pure to God's will, undefiled like a perfect diamond, without spot, blemish, or discolor. That despite the ridicule, jealousy, hate, and accusation this pure God-man received, he did not sin against his brother, but turned the other cheek. That in his greatest moment of torture and death, all the while bearing the just judgment for our sin on his person, he sinned not. Behold the holiness of God revealed in the God-man Jesus Christ. If holiness is one way of describing that which is set apart, unique and transcendent, he is holy in every way. There is none like him, none before him and none after him. None can compare. Behold the selflessness of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Never do we see selfish intent or action in him. Always was his heart propelled towards the will of his Father in heaven and the good of humankind. When he was tired, hungry, and thirsty, did he turn his back on the woman at the well who needed his ministry? Behold the humility of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Though the arrival of the creator of the cosmos deserves the greatest fanfare possible, humbly he came as an infant in a womb, born in a cold and stinky barn, laid in a feeding trough. Though he possessed the wisdom of the ages and could defeat the intellect of any great philosopher, he put his hands to the shaping of wood until his father called him to public ministry. As the great and glorious king of all, he stood insulted by the evil king of his beloved people and did not return insult or call on the legions at his disposal. Behold the power of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. There was no sickness that could not be healed by his words. There was no demonic principality or power that could not stand against his command. There was no storm or tempest beyond his ability to silence and control with his words alone. Be still. Behold the unparalleled love of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's called the bridegroom, who has healed, he has healed, purified, 
and he will return for his beloved bride. And great shall their wedding celebration be. Nothing was withheld by him that could be given for the betterment to the object of his affection. Not even his very life would he withhold. A life of suffering, pain, and hardship leading to a cruel end he was willing to endure, motivated by his radical and unquenchable love. Consider still that the objects of his love weren't simply helpless victims of a world bound by the chains of sin, but rebels within his kingdom, enemies of God, sinners hell-bent on having their way and destroying the lives of others while on their path of destruction. Yet he loved them still. Behold the goodness of God revealed in the God-man Jesus Christ. Never was his plan to hurt or destroy, but to teach, confront, build up, and heal. Never could it be said that his words and works were not good. Behold the patience of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Though millennia of sin and corruption has endured, ultimately, in its greatest sense, an affront to a God who is holy and creator of all, still Christ in his patience didn't come first to judge, but to heal and save. Though one of his own special and chosen twelve was willing to betray him for some silver, and he knew it before it happened, he didn't turn him away, but patiently endured the kiss of betrayal that led to his arrest and crucifixion. Behold the mercy and grace of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Though he would have been just to cast the first stone at the woman caught in adultery, he himself being without sin, instead he extends his arm of forgiveness and calls her to a new way of living. Though he was publicly rejected on three occasions by one of his closest disciples, he invites a reaffirmation of his disciples' love and uses this disciple as a foundational leader in his juvenile church. Behold the unsearchable wisdom of God revealed in the God-man Jesus Christ. He is a teacher like no other, able to communicate profound truth and glorious and powerful simplicity. His parables have amazed the minds of intellectuals for thousands of years. His truth has formed the foundation of this world as we now know it. He was able to silence his accusers with a few words. It was able to stand silent before his accusers when words were not needed. Behold the relatability of God revealed in the God-man Jesus Christ. He would hang out with the poor, outcast, and despised. It was comfortable talking too with kings, rulers, and governors. He could sit with the simplicity of children upon his lap, yet debate with the great minds in the synagogue. Behold the justice of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He confronted sin and injustice in his words and actions. He submitted himself to the just judgment of God while taking our sin upon himself. He will bring the nations under his feet when he returns to judge the world and make all things new. 
Behold, both the great, uh, the gentleness and severity of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. A smoldering wick he would not put out, nor a bruised reed would he break. Yet he will bring low the proud and arrogant rulers of this age. See him teaching meekly at the temple one day, and the next running about with the whip chasing out the money men. He is both the lion and the lamb. Finally, behold the glory and radiance of God revealed in the God-man Jesus Christ. There he stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, glowing with the Shekinah glory of God, fellowshipping with saints of old. Hear John's description of him as one like a son of man. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ. Behold the person who perfectly represents God to us. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ. Behold the person who also perfectly represents us to God. We read in Hebrews that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his Father, the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The he in these verses is none other than the Jesus of history, Jesus of Nazareth, the man who had walked the earth, died and was raised to new life before ascending into heaven. Behold then the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man who perfectly represents us to God. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ, who knew well the limitations of his flesh, Though he was God, he hungered and thirsted for water. See him struggling in human weakness in the desert after having fasted for 40 days. Though he was God, he knew, he knew tiredness and need of rest. See him resting at the well, catching his breath after a long walk. See his eyes half glazed after a sleepless night in prayer. See him with aching arms, calloused hands, and burnt skin after laboring with wood all day in the brazen sun. See him tired from ministry, napping in the bottom of a boat while the tempest rages around him and his disciples. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ, who can relate to our hunger, thirst, weakness, tiredness, and need for rest. The words of Augustine, man's maker was made that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breasts, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life 
might die. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who knew what it was to learn. Though possessing all knowledge and wisdom as God, he submitted himself to the limitation of human growth, having to be taught by his parents how to talk, having to be taught by his father how to carve wood, having to be taught by his heavenly father how to fulfill the call on his life. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who understands like us what it is to learn and grow. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who knows what it is to be tempted as a human. Though God cannot be tempted, Jesus, we are told, was. Though he turned away from the desires of the flesh, the allure of this world and its possessions would have had some appeal. Though he was tempted and without sin, he would have experienced temptation to agree a degree few of us would know, and that his resistance to it brought the full fury of the enemy against him. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who understands what it's like to be tempted to sin. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who knew the need for discipline. See him labor in his craft as a carpenter day after day, year after year. See him devote himself unswervingly to prayer, often throughout the entire evening. See him in the synagogue committing the scriptures to memory. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who knows what it is to suffer. Though God cannot be tormented, see the torment he underwent in Gethsemane as he contemplated his crucifixion, sweating blood. See him punched in the face unjustly by his accusers. See him beaten with whips that tore flesh from his back. See the crown of thorns placed upon his head, piercing deep into his skull. Hear him cry out in desperation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who knows what it is to be humiliated. Though all glory belonged to him as God, that which he created spat upon his face, ridiculed him for his declaration of truth, and publicly shamed him despite the love and grace he had shown. Hear the cry of the people yelling, crucify him, when only a week before they were welcoming him as a king. See him nailed, naked, to the tree, vulnerable and exposed to the world. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who knows what it is to depend upon God. Though God needs no one to depend on, see the God-man turning daily to his Father in prayer, seeking him in his will in all things. Hear him cry out, into your hands I commit my spirit. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ, being offered up as a purification for our sins. The just punishment for our sin was declared by the perfect judge to be death. See him willingly receive this punishment on our behalf. See him as the Passover lamb who was to be killed and whose blood was to be painted over the doorpost that the angel of death might pass us by. 
See him in his very person, both God and man, forever united, that we might be united to God by virtue of our faith in him, thanks to his paying our ransom for our sins. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ in his now glorified human state. See the God-man that bears the scars of his death, yet can die no more. See the God-man who can appear in locked rooms and appear to transcend time and space. See the God-man who ascended into the blue sky until his figure was veiled behind the clouds. In this way he will return. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who was the perfect Adam. Though he was tempted, he refused to eat the forbidden fruit of disobedience. He is the second Adam, the final Adam, who instead of imputing death to those who follow him, he imputes life. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Abraham. He was righteous by his faith and trust in God, yet he never offered up his wife to his enemies. He is the father of more than many, but all. Behold the God-man Jesus who is the perfect Isaac, who was truly offered on the altar rather than substituted for a ram. See him as he trusts in his father's apparently crazy plan that blessing may be bestowed upon the world. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Jacob who became Israel. He had no need to deceitfully steal the blessed birthright from his brother. Instead, he gave it up his rights willingly so others could be adopted into his family. He too wrestled with God on the cross on behalf of humanity, receiving more than dislocated hip for his fight, yet inherited the blessing of God for his descendants. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Joseph. See him sold into the slavery of our sin, imprisoned unjustly for his righteousness, extending forgiveness to those who have betrayed him, and exercising wise and perfect government over God's people. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Moses. More than speaking on behalf of God when he spoke, God was speaking. See him also leading his people to freedom from the great slavery of sin through the waters of baptism into a promised land, the ultimate exodus. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Job. See him suffer at the hands of the devil, though he was righteous. See him suffer the accusations of those called his friends, though he deserved it not. See the double portion of glory he will receive after his experience of suffering and death. Behold the God-man Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Jonah. See him run to Nineveh rather than away from it. See him preach a perfect message calling all to repentance. See him share the heart of God in showing mercy to his enemies rather than despising it. And see him enter the belly of the whale for three days, only to be spat out as death could not hold him.
Behold the God-man Jesus Christ who now resides in heavenly perfection, perfectly representing us to God. Into the holy of holies he entered and there he remains with no fear of death. His very nature as a human, ever acting as intercession for us and our ongoing weakness until the day he returns to bring his completed work to its final conclusion. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ. Behold the person who created all things. Though this God-man, Jesus Christ, uh, through this God-man, we are told in Hebrews that the universe was created. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ, through whom all that we see and know has been made. Think of the beauty and intricacy of a flower and all its radiance. It was made by his hands. Meditate upon the, uh, the glorious and changing colors of a sunset or a mountain view. He created it. Consider the variety of insects, animals, and creatures that roam the earth, their abilities, intricacies, appearances, and interdependency. This is all the work of the god man Look at the unique print upon your finger. It is his design. Think of the complexity of your eye, the breath in your lungs feeding oxygen to your body through your blood. Think about the complexity of the human brain, so much of which we cannot fully yet explain. The God-man created it all. As if this wasn't enough, consider the stars above. Their number too great to count and see. Their distance from us too great to travel. Their beauty and diversity beyond our ability to imagine or even observe. This universe ever expanding, never fully known, only a portion of which can be seen. It's all simply a display of the God-man's creativity, vastness, grandeur, glory, and beauty. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ. Behold the person who not only created all things, but sustains all things. In Hebrews, we are told that all things are not simply created through this God-man, but that all things are sustained by his powerful word. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ, sustaining all things. If planet Earth must continue orbiting around the sun, it is he that keeps it in orbit. He simply speaks. If the Earth must continue rotating to sustain life, it is he that keeps it turning. He simply speaks. If we must continue breathing, it is he that gives us breath. If we must continue eating and being nourished, it is he that provides food to the hungry tummy. It is he that causes the plants to grow, the animals to be born, and the sun to shine. He simply speaks. If our hearts must continue beating, it is he that keeps them doing so. The keys to life and death are held in his hands, this Jesus of Nazareth. If he has sustained you for yesterday, he will sustain you for today. If he has sustained you for today, he will sustain you for tomorrow. For he is faithful as only God can be faithful. His word is powerful. 
this Jesus of Nazareth who walked the earth, this God-man who was born at Christmas. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ. Behold the person who is the heir of all things. Finally, in these three magnificent verses at the start of Hebrews, we are told that this God-man, Jesus Christ, is the heir of all things. As God, all things were already made through him and by virtue of that fact belong to him already. But as a man, he has not yet fully possessed his inheritance. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect King David. Faithful and wise as a king, yet perfect in moral standing, never committing adultery or murdering his fellow kinsmen. Look to the day when he returns to the earth as the glorified, radiant God-man who will establish God's rule forever here on earth in the new heavens and new earth. Look to the day when he exercises his judgment to subdue the beasts and corrupt rulers of this age that justice and righteousness may finally reign. Consider the victory he has already won against the principalities and powers of the unseen world, having made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. We are told no weapon forged against him has prospered, and that though the nations rage against him, will continue to do so when he returns. His victory is certain, because his work is complete. This is why we see him now, through the eyes of faith, sitting at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Sitting. He cannot be elevated beyond the most high place he already holds. Yet every knee will bow before him, whether in free and loving submission or resentful defeat. He will come again on the clouds of glory with the holy angels to inherit that which he has earned by virtue of his person and work as the one and only God-man. And his inheritance is the cosmos. My friends, I wish I could adequately explain him to you, the Son of God incarnate. But I cannot. His reality goes beyond that which can be described. Just know and look forward to the day when you will stand before him face to face. Because then it will be the eyes of God looking into your eyes. Then it will be the hand of God placed lovingly upon your shoulder. Then it will be the embrace of God curled tightly around your waist. Then you will hear the loving words of God speak tenderly and audibly into your ear. Then your eyes of faith will be forever united with your true vision. Come, let us adore him. I just want to finish um, in prayer and... Um, I want to kneel as I do that, and I want to invite you, if you're capable and comfortable, to, to join me in that. And then I think it would be appropriate to, to sing again.
Jesus, how, how short, how so far short do words fall in describing the glory, the beauty, the radiance of who you are? Lord, our only appropriate response is worship. Wonder, awe, like the shepherds at Christmas time, the angels, the chorus of angels, the heavenly hosts, Lord, that we would simply say, God, you are glorious. We can never fully comprehend the beauty and wonder of the incarnation. But we want this Christmas time to grasp it just that little bit more, to give you just that little bit more worship that you deserve. May the truth of your reality sink deeper into our hearts this Christmas time, that we would truly experience the spirit of Christmas as you intended it to be. In Jesus' name.